So <clears throat> just at the outset, I just want to say um, this is a bit of an intense sermon. I don't want to overstate it, but you, we just, you just heard the reading of Scripture. I mean, there's a lot going on here, and this also happens to be one of like the three Sundays a month we don't have children's church. So um, that's, that's great. But so what we've done is we have the blue room in the back. If you feel like you can, I, I'm not want to overstate it. It's not going to be like, uh, like the most R-rated movie you've ever seen or something. But if you feel uncomfortable at any point with your child um, listening or, and maybe even some of the older children, it can be harder because they can process and understand a little more. So Use your discretion. The blue room uh, is open for you. If to, to take advantage of that, you'll need to go back there as a parent, uh, one of you, uh, if there's two of you in the family, and uh, someone needs to be with your child. We do not have that staffed up right now, but we do have that available for you, some coloring supplies and things like that. All right. Uh, with that being said, um, yeah, this is an intense uh, part of Scripture. I mean, we just asked, Joe said, pray for your, your leaders. Yeah, you should, you should pray for me as I preach this sermon. There, there's a lot to cover um, as we walk through this together. But I want you uh, to, first of all, understand <clears throat> that we're not supposed to interpret. I mean, this is one of those passages that shows us we should not interpret Revelation literally. Uh, there are a number of people, a number of others, uh, other pastors, theologians, who try to basically make flow charts out of Revelation, uh, create 5,000-page, 14-part series that can really explain everything to you, exactly as it's going to happen. I really do not think that is the best way to read Revelation. Uh, it really cannot be interpreted literally. What you have here is you have an ap apocalyptic vision being seen by a man given to him by God, and he's doing his best to give us that information. It would be tempting for us to treat this passage and other passages like it as less than authoritative or inspired or inerrant than other passages that we feel like we can understand more easily and apply more easily. But I think that would be a mistake. I mean, in some ways, John is like, uh, think about your five-year-old. If you asked a five-year-old to draw a picture of their parents, they could do that. I mean, it would be good. It wouldn't be like totally accurate, exactly like the parents. But then ask the five-year-old child to draw a picture of their family in a time of war. They're actually doing this. They're doing art therapy with children uh, in the Syrian war and maybe in other wars, but I'm more familiar with Syria and Ukraine where children are being asked to draw pictures of their families to help them process their trauma. And the children can draw pictures that definitely show you what is going on, what generally happened to them in ways that helps open them up and they can then have conversations with these children about what has happened. I think you would not want to say to that child, your picture doesn't demonstrate reality. Your picture isn't true because it's not exactly as it happened. Of course not. We would never say that to the child. The picture is real. The picture is true. I think John is doing the best he can. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be very careful just to write it off as if, well, we can't understand this, so Let's go to lunch. No, throughout the centuries, the church has held Revelation to be canonical. The last sermon I preached on Revelation 7, 9 through 17, you wouldn't want to take that out of, out of Revelation, would you? Well, we can't be willy-nilly as if we're at a cafeteria with the Bible and say, I like that scripture. This one's too hard to understand. 
So I don't treat that as something that I need to pay attention to. We don't want to do that. We have to think about what John saw, and we do our best to interpret it. And then it makes us think about, as we think about what John saw, it makes us think about what do we see? What do we see happening in the world right now? And if we were to try to draw it, how would we do? What would we try to be putting together? How would we be pulling together all of these things that are before us in the news and in our own lives? How would we do it as we begin to even think about drawing a picture like that? And you could even hear it in Mark's prayer today. It makes us want to pray. It makes us long for and groan for the Lord to be at work in our world to bring redemption to help us understand how he's at work. It makes us want to pray, but then we begin to pray for something like Israel and Gaza or some of the other things that are more germane to our own suffering, and we then ask ourselves the question, if you're like me, sometimes if you're honest, what happens with my prayers? What difference do my prayers actually make? Are my prayers wasted What's the point? What does God do with the groanings and the longings of our prayers in this world? Well, the beginning of our passage in chapter 8 shows us what happens to our prayers. They're collected before the Lord. They sit on his altar in heaven. They are somehow there before him. We have this intermittent picture of, you can imagine, the temple of old, the tabernacle, the temple, You have the altar that's there right before the Holy of Holies. And in God's heavenly throne room, that earthly tabernacle temple is just a type of that ultimate temple where God and the holiest of holies is there. And before him, imagine a great table and all of the prayers of the saints for all of time are strewn out across that table and they are continually before the Lord. Not a single prayer is wasted and you have this angel that comes and he begins to, to take these, these prayers and put them in what's called a censer, C-E-N-S-E-R, which I didn't know what that was, but it's a metal plate that you can put something in to burn incense. I don't burn incense very often. Uh, but, but this angel, as a picture of what is happening in heaven, that the angels are continually as if it were burning our prayers before the Lord as an aroma and the smoke fills the temple and the Lord is constantly aware of your prayers. What does God do with those prayers? Well, we pray specific things that we want the Lord to do and sometimes he answers them in the ways that we specifically ask him to answer them. But sometimes he doesn't exactly answer them that way and in the wisdom of God, the Lord answers prayers sometimes in ways and sometimes even for better purposes, I would say it always is for a better purpose because it's God's purpose than we might have meant or even ever comprehended or anticipated. The title of the sermon is A Severe Mercy. This is one of my favorite books that's ever been written. You should read it. A Severe Mercy by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. Sheldon Van Auken uh, was a friend of C.S. Lewis and Van Auken fell in love with a woman. Uh, she, she's called Davy by him. That's her, her kind of pet name uh, that, that he calls her. Um, and so she, he and Davy, her name is Jean. He calls her Davy. They fall in love, and they fall deeply, deeply, deeply in love. And, and they are wealthy, 
and they decide together they don't really need to work and so they decide together they're going to idolize their love for one another like literally they literally enter into a pact together to idolize their love for one another so that nothing can come between them in the world they called it the shining barrier and they put this shining barrier around their relationship and they covenanted that nothing could ever come between them, ever. But then Jean, or Davy, started feeling a bit empty inside. Even though she loved, it was nothing wrong with Sheldon, but Sheldon couldn't complete her as she thought after years and years. And, and again, there was nothing wrong with their marriage, but Davy wanted something else. She wanted something more. And she began to go to church And she began to be gripped by the gospel of grace and it started to change her life and she became a Christian and it really bothered, really bothered Sheldon. Because now he feels like he's losing his wife to God and he doesn't believe in God and he doesn't know what to do. And and Davy's singular prayer really was that God would change Sheldon's life that God would work in Sheldon's life and show Sheldon who he was. And the, the amazing thing about this book is, so Sheldon begins to reach out to C.S. Lewis by letter, and there are, I think, 16 letters of Sheldon Van Auken and C.S. Lewis corresponding where Lewis is sharing the gospel with Sheldon Van Auken. And eventually, that gets through, but it's not just through C.S. Lewis's letter writing. You see, Gene prays for Sheldon's salvation, but God takes him and their relationship through some unbelievable trauma. And it's through the trauma that Sheldon reaches out to God and finds him. Gene's prayer for his salvation, she could not have ever anticipated how God would answer that prayer. She would have never prayed for the trauma Who would? But God in his wisdom and his sovereignty saved her husband's life. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I'm leaving out some details so you'll read it. It's a severe mercy. Sometimes the way God works, it feels severe. It is severe in our lives. But when the Lord in this passage, what you see here is you find in each of these trumpets, you find limited limited judgment. You find that God puts parameters on the judgment that he brings in our lives. He doesn't fully execute his wrath. He brings limited pain so that we will reach out to him and find him, so that we will, we will stop and realize our vulnerability and that we might repent and trust in him. The big idea of this sermon is In these seven trumpets we find, in the first four trumpets, that in the devastation of the earth, in the second trumpet, in the uh, fifth and sixth trumpets, the rebellion of humanity, and in the final trumpet, the destruction of our destroyers, these are all opportunities for a lost world to repent and find the grace of God. So in the devastation of earth, the rebellion of humanity, and the destruction of our destroyers, these are opportunities to repent and put our hope in the king of kings. So well, first of all, we'll start with these first four trumpets, the devastation of the earth and an opportunity for repentance. 
First of all, trumpets. Okay, why trumpets? What's the deal with trumpets? Well, throughout Scripture, trumpets announce the coming of God in splendor and in victory. Just a couple of references. There's a lot here. We don't have a lot of time. I swear I have like four times the amount of homework I've done in this sermon that I can share with you here. So if you want to talk more about it, I can't touch everything. There's a lot of imagery here, but trumpets is important to understand. First of all, in splendor, think about when God came to Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19, there were trumpet blasts. When you think about victory, think about Joshua and the battle of Jericho as they they blow trumpets, the walls incredibly fall before a miraculous God. Trumpets actually are throughout the scriptures and they sound alarms. They warn the complacent. They are there to snap God's people out of their boredom and remind us that we are in a spiritual war. So each of these trumpets is like a blast where God is speaking into the world and saying, I'm here in your pain, in your suffering, I'm here. Please look to me and find me. The first trumpet is about hail and fire and blood on the earth. Each of, the, each of these trumpets evokes imagery from the, the uh, 10 plagues uh, of Egypt, and I'll point those out to you. So this, this first trumpet with hail, fire, and blood brings us imagery of the seventh plague in Egypt where hail fell with fire and lightning upon the Egyptians and destroyed their animals and crops, okay? This isn't just a reference to the past. It's also a prophecy of the present and of future destruction that would come through natural disaster and war. But notice, as with each of the plagues, this is really important insight, that we have this a third, a third, a third throughout the reading as you heard it, that God's judgment is always limited. There are always parameters on his judgment to leave. He shows restraint to make room for repentance. The second trumpet is a burning mountain that's cast into the sea. This reminds us of the first plague in Egypt where the water was turned to blood. Now here the blood is caused by a volcanic eruption. Really interestingly, Mount Vesuvius uh, exploded, or you know, whatever volcanoes do, uh, they, you know, it erupted in AD 79. In the, it's about the exact same time that John is writing. We, we put Revelation between 80 and 90. So John either knew about Vesuvius or he didn't, and he was prophesying it, we don't know. But in the case of Vesuvius and Pompeii, literally the eruption causes uh, human blood to fall, to, to, to go into the ocean as it fell into, as, as Pompeii was destroyed and part of the land fell into the ocean. So we could think about other natural disasters like tsunamis and things like that possibly. But notice again, there is a limit to God's judgment. There's restraint. There's an opportunity for repentance. The third trumpet, there's a burning star that falls on rivers and springs. This again takes us back to the first plague in Egypt where the blood in the Nile led to a lack of clean water. So with this third trumpet, I want to caution you against just saying, you know, a meteor is literally going to come and land on the earth and destroy a third of the earth. That's not impossible that that would be the interpretation, but we have to be really careful not to all of a sudden, when something seems to be a little more clear, to then zero in on it and then get very literal with Revelation. Okay, I don't know that, I don't know that that's what it's saying. It's possible there could be a meteor or something one day, 
But what it's really teaching us is that the Lord, through these, these judgments and natural disasters, uh, he, there's going to be uh, some kind of destruction of the earth's water supply. Certainly, we can think of today with the threats that exist in our environment as, as I preach this, two billion people do not have access to clean water. And we need to, as the church, and the church more than any other entity is mobilized to bring clean water into the world. We are seeing NGOs of Christians, many Christians, also other faiths, but many Christians are leading the effort to bring water to those who do not have it. We have destroyed the environment in many ways. And we don't need to live behind the judgment of God as if that's just what's happening. No, we need to bring a cup of water to those who are in need. But this is one way that the Lord brings limited judgment to the world in the third trumpet. The fourth trumpet, we see the sun, moon, and stars darkened. This echoes the ninth plague in Egypt where darkness covers the land, all except for in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. So you bring, God can bring darkness and maintain light at the same time. And we don't need to literally get into like, oh, what would it look like to have a third of the light removed? I mean, that, that's not helpful. But the idea is that through either through natural disaster or it could be through war. As Rome was advancing, they would burn cities, fill the air with smoke. As we see in war today, there's, there's this darkness that comes in and covers the land. Perhaps this is how we would interpret it. Not all the light is darkened, though. In every single trumpet, there is limited, there are parameters on the, ju- the judgment that God brings. God is even merciful in his judgment. So what's the point? When, when, when woe comes to the earth, when disaster comes to the earth, it's not random. Somehow, in the mind of God, as if God is giving us a peek behind the scenes in a play, as we go behind the scenes, there's, and we can't fully understand it, but there's something in the, the will of God, in the mind of God, where he's working this out according to his will. You know, I heard a sermon about 25 years ago that was something like this, and I think it might have been by John Piper, but he said, at the end of the day, when you see these kind of judgments on the earth, you're forced to either curse God or worship him. You have to curse God or worship him. You're forced to make a decision. These things are happening in the world. Are they random? Is it nihilistic? Is there no point to it? Or is God somehow at work in his mercy restraining the fullness of his wrath so that people will call out to him? Now, I want, as, I, as we talk about this, I want to really caution us. I also heard somebody when I, about 25 years ago, another pastor. His name was Pat Robertson, who ran for president, and he said that a hurricane that hit the Florida panhandle was the will of God because he was judging the sin that happens on the Florida beaches. I think that's really idiotic and wrong to say something like that. For a preacher or anyone else to be able to say that a particular natural disaster is from God for a particular reason for judgment on a certain people, that is, is way going beyond the pale. So we need to be very careful We're tempted, I think, when we read passages like this in Revelation to try to line it up with current events. And I think it's very dangerous to do so. I think we can bring general understanding of how God works into this, but we need to be very careful about bringing specific application to world 
events as if they line up directly. And we see this all the time. All the time. I get texts from people that I grew up with, and they're just taking random passages out of the Old Testament about Israel and sending them to me and saying, look, we have to this and that. And I'm like, dude, that is not about, I mean, there's no way that you know that's about this too because it was definitely about something that happened like 3,000 years ago. We have to be very, very careful not to be willy-nilly with our application of the Bible. We also have to be very careful about interpreting the judgment or the suffering that we experience and relating it back to something very specific in our own lives. Unless the connection between our sin and the consequences of our sin are super clear, we don't want to draw those connection lines. I've, I've counseled many people that will come to me and say, say, so, you know, when I was in high school or in college, I did a lot of bad things. Maybe this thing that just happened to me in my 40s that has nothing to do with anything that happened in high school or college, it's not even related. It could be like I was sexually promiscuous in high school and I just lost my job. Do you think God is punishing me for that? And we have to be so careful that that can cause such mental anguish for you to think that. Now, on the other hand, couple nights ago in my neighborhood, uh, not in, this person is not in my family and I don't even know them, but I heard that a 15-year-old boy took his dad's car out to go see his girlfriend. He's, he doesn't have a license and he ran over my neighbor's mailbox and totally destroyed it and now he's grounded. Well, yeah, like if there's a direct consequence from your sinful activity to something going on in your life, sure, we can talk about that, Okay. We can talk about that. But you have to be very careful not to go, oh, you know what? God is punishing me for this, this thing I did. My counsel for someone who's in mental anguish over something that happened in the past is that God is gracious. If you believed in Christ, he has forgiven you. He loves you. He's no longer holding that against you. Okay, we have to be very careful to, to believe the gospel and apply the gospel instead of getting willy-nilly about the applications of these things in our lives. But let's be clear, sometimes in hindsight, when we look back on this, in hindsight, we look back on some things that the Lord has done in our life, some hard things that we've been through. I know this is true in my life. And I know that without that difficult time the Lord took me through, I would not be the person that I am today. I know that's true. My mom prayed for me like no one else that I would know the Lord. She would never pray. She's a Pentecostal. She would never pray for me to suffer. And no mom would ever pray for their child to suffer. But God knew in his sovereignty that in order for me to love him and know him and to be smashed of my pride and arrogance, I was going to need to go through some pain. Limited pain, but pain. And through that, I reached out and and found the Lord. C.S. Lewis says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so since we're talking about natural disaster, I am not going to do the Pat Robertson thing and draw, draw a straight line into application or interpretation of those events. But I will say that history is filled with people who have gone through a natural disaster and that has been their moment of salvation. And it's in God's sovereignty how he works that out. I know that the people in China and around the world pray for gospel opportunities. They would, we would never pray for an earthquake, yet 
In 2008, the Sichuan earthquake was so devastating that China, for the first time, let Christian NGOs flood into that region. And, and the local churches in China could go in with whatever resources that they had because the, the Communist Party had no answers for the devastation. And many people heard the gospel. And many people saw the church respond in ways that the church, the, the other community was not mobilized to do, nor did they have the theology, the undergirding theology to respond that way. And so many people heard the gospel through that earthquake. And we have to, we have to curse God or worship him. How would he... How would he make that decision? Thank God it's not my pay grade to make those decisions. But the Lord works in these ways. Moms and dads pray for the salvation of their children. We would never pray for them to suffer, but sometimes as they walk through hard times, they reach out and they find the Lord. The Lord speaks to us and shouts to us in our pain, and that pain is not pointless. It is so our world will be roused to believe in him. So that's the first point. It's about natural disaster. The second is about the rebellion of humanity. The rebellion of humanity and opportunity for repentance. So these next two trumpets sound the alarm on a rebellious humanity. Trumpet five, uh, you have demons from the abyss. So make sure to notice at the outset that when this trumpet is sounded, that God has authority over this trumpet as well. God has authority over the spiritual realms and has authority over the demons. He has authority over Satan. Nothing that happens in this trumpet happens without God knowing that it's happening or even uh, permitting it all to happen. So when this fallen star is cast from heaven, and this may be Satan who falls like a star from heaven in chapter 12, verses seven through nine, as he is cast out of God's presence, He falls to the earth and he opens the abyss of demons. And in that wake, this army of locusts emerges. So whenever you read about locusts in the Bible, you need to think about two places at least. You need to think about the plagues, again, the eighth plague, where the the locusts come and locusts can devastate land like in a day. They can just rip land apart and just take it completely down to the nub. The second place in the Bible you need to go is Joel 2, which is a prophecy of the day of the Lord, where the locusts come and they bring destruction on the land, and the locusts locusts are summoned by a trumpet blast. And so often when we need revelation, we, we think about the future, but with John writing it, you also have to think about the past, like what is informing John's writing? What, how is he interpreting what he's seeing? Well, he's seeing it definitely through the lens of Exodus and through the lens of the minor prophets. This is impacting his vision. So the locust army symbolizes a swarm of demonic influence that will, quote, torment the minds and souls of those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is really important for you to listen to, okay? So those who dwell on the earth in Revelation always refers to those who are not God's people, it always refers to people who have not yet responded to the gospel of grace. These locusts cannot harm, chapter 9, verse 4, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, which means that there is a limit to how much demonic activity you can experience as a child of God. Because you are Jesus' child, he places a limit on how far demons can go. I believe that 
Christians cannot be filled with demons or possessed by demons, but we can be tormented in some way by demons, but there's a limit to it, okay? There's a limit. God is not going to allow you to be tormented in the ways that are described here, which as these demons inflict pain, they cannot kill their victims. What's interesting about this, they cannot kill their victims, but their victims hate their life so much that they wish they could die. I mean, it's horrible. But there's a limit on it. God does not allow them to die through this because the whole point is that they would reach out and see that there is life beyond them. What's incredibly diabolical about Satan here is that the same people that he lures in to follow him, he then attacks them. So he, for your loyalty to him, for your willingness to follow him, he rewards that with torture, with hatred. This is diabolical. This is what Satan does. He lures us in. He tells us this is going to be great. And then he turns on us and makes our lives miserable. And this is something that Satan is not able to do with God's people because he, God will not allow this to happen to them. It's very hard to say how this matches up in history, but generally speaking, this mix of satanic influence with war and global conquest, I think what we're seeing here is that there's, there's satanic influence that is lurking in the hearts of some of the leaders of the world. We war not against flesh and blood, some of what happened with Rome was not just Rome, it's not just Caesar, it's, it's Satan influencing the world through this love of power and influence. What happened with Hitler, certainly this is satanic, what happened with Hitler, his hatred of Jewish people, his desire to build this vast empire of Aryan people, it's wicked, satanic. It's not merely a man. What we see with other regimes that hate the church, it's not merely a man. It's diabolical evil lurking in the hearts of men and women, and, and they create schemes and structures and institutions that, that influence the world. But notice that God restrains the evil in the world. He limits the human conquest. He limits the evil lurking behind human power. If God did not limit this, then the world would go completely amok. Even in the wickedness, there is restraint so that we will turn to the Lord after we see what men are capable of, that we see what nations are capable of, that we would not put our hope in those men or in those nations. The sixth trumpet talks about war from the east. So in the sixth trumpet, there is less restraint. Now God allows his angels who somehow in the spiritual realms have been holding back some of the dread near the Euphrates River. I don't fully get that. But often the, the bad guys come out of the east, all right, in, in his, the history of God's people. And so they're, they're limiting the dread and then they, they allow more dread to come on the earth. So you have a loss of human life. Now it says a third of human life. Again, we don't need to all of a sudden get literal about that because so much else cannot be interpreted literally. But to get an idea of what something like what John is seeing, that if, if it's anywhere near a third, you're talking about 200 million with those numbers that he's throwing around. 200, an army of 200 million people. 
So the important thing is not trying to locate this trumpet in history. The important thing is that God ordains that rebellious mankind will experience some consequences of their sin. As a result of sin in the world, with demonic attacks and world leaders who believe Satan's lies that spin entire worldviews and cultures around those lies, those realities will increase. The end of chapter 9 is very important in verses 20 and 21. Why does God allow this? Why does he allow the increase in violence, death, and despair? Well, we learn here it says that he is looking for repentance. He wants repentance. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I mentioned this two weeks ago, is 2 Peter 3, 9, is that God is patient with you. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. God is pulling out the stops, as it were, to show the world that what lurks behind the hearts of men, what, what is on the stage of world history with worshiping money, material things, murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, theft, it's not, the, it's not the way, it's not the answer. And he wants us to turn to him. You know, in the midst of all of this, we have to recognize, as we see God's restrained but increasing wrath in this passage, we then need to turn to the cross. Okay, if you tuned out for a minute, you got lost, you can tune back in, all right? That was a lot there. Tune back in, all right? We go to the cross think about Jesus Christ taking on the full wrath of God for you. Now you think about that wrath in light of these passages, which just represent the limited judgment of God on sin. You think about what Christ went for you. There is one person who has already been through all of the judgment, who's taken on all of the darkness, who's taken on all of the sin, who went into the ultimate spiritual battle, He faced Satan head on. He went all the way to death, which is the great threat in all of this, death. He went all the way to death on a cross for you and me. There is one who has already been through the judgment so that you can place his name, to use the illustration here, on your forehead. By faith, you can say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he took on God's wrath against sin for me. Thank God. I I am one of his people. I believe the gospel. I need God's grace. You can turn to him in repentance. If you've never done that, you can do it today. But if you are one of God's people, this is not your future. You are going to be protected by him. Yes, we will experience some pain and suffering in this world, but you will not experience ever the full wrath or justice of God carried out on you because Jesus has already walked through that valley of the shadow of death. You can fear no evil for God is with you. You have Christ and he protects us from the judgment. We look at the cross, we ask ourselves the question, how in the world can God's justice and mercy coexist? How does this work? Well, we look at Jesus and we see the unrestrained wrath of God on his son, that Jesus pays the penalty, and we receive the mercy of God. Why did Jesus hang there on the cross for, for us? It was so that through justice, we might receive God's mercy This is where the justice and the mercy of God kiss. 
So as we read this passage as Christians, we recognize that Jesus, because of his death on the cross, he is the only reason why we are protected. He's the only reason why we can withstand. All of Satan's schemes, they will fail against you ultimately. Maybe we'll be beset. Maybe we'll have some struggles. But in the end, Christ will win. In the end, Christ will win. And that's where we go in the final passage, which is the destruction of our destroyers and the opportunity for repentance. This is a brief point. Just hold on with me. I know this has been a long reading and a longer service in general. Trumpet seven is kingdom come. This is the hallelujah chorus. This is where the 24 elders of Revelation stand up and they say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ and he will reign forever and ever. God will envelop the world with his presence and he will eradicate the world of evil and he will destabilize and destroy all of our destroyers, all of the destroyers of the earth. God in his sovereignty allows destroyers to come and do their harm. It's beyond my pay grade and beyond yours. I do not get it. I do not fully or even halfway adequately understand how God works. But the good news of the gospel is in the end, all who would seek to destroy God's people and God's church All who seek to destroy the image of God, the image bearers of God, they will not win. They will perish. They will be destroyed. Our God is a God who will reign. I I shudder to imagine the position that certain men in history who have hated the church of Jesus Christ and have diabolically stood in the way of of the church and have persecuted the church and have not turned to God in repentance like Paul, but have persisted, I I do not want to imagine the day that those men stand in the presence of God because it will be no match. There will be no war. It will be complete and total eradication of evil on that day. God will protect, and he will answer all the prayers of his saints. He will win in the end, and Satan and those who follow him will lose. So listen, where do my prayers go when I pray them, when I look at the angst of the world? God is collecting your prayers. He is, he is answering our prayers. He is at work in mysterious and uncomfortable ways, and he's trying to open our eyes in the world to him. He shouts to us in our pain, He walked through the valley of the shadow of death for you so that you, in your pain, would be able to turn to him and find him. He will never be like Satan is to his followers, where Satan lures you in and says, if you follow me, I'll give you something great. And then he he just enacts violence on you and, and, and makes your life so brutal, a living hell. Jesus says, If you follow me, I'll give you life. And he does. He does it through his own life on the cross. All of these limits to God's judgment, as he rolls them out, the desire and the goal is that we would repent and follow and trust in him. Will you do that today? Let's pray. Lord, if we're not humble before you, then we should be. If anyone thinks he's great, 
he's not. If anyone thinks they're smart, in your presence they're not. If anyone thinks their works can stand up in your holiness, there's no way that's going to happen. If anyone thinks that they can be so good and so righteous or so mighty that they can please you on their own, that's foolish. Lord, we thank you that we have a king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who already came and accomplished everything for you. So that if we hide ourselves in him, we can shelter in place until the storm goes by. We thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are infinitely wise and that even in our pain, you shout to us to tell us that you love us and you love this world. In Jesus' name, amen.